Amen, amen. Well, church, congratulations. You lost an hour of sleep and you still made it here today. Congratulations. Give yourself a round of applause. You made it. If you're watching online, we're still proud of you because you still got up and you're watching right now. So thanks for joining us online. And uh, if you didn't notice the video before, Pastor Zach is in Nicaragua. Right now, he commissioned the new pastor of the Nicaraguan church, and we're just so proud of him because we are a church that multiplies, and so you guys are senders. You sent Pastor Zach to Nicaragua. We have a vision to multiply this church, not only locally, but globally, and we are living out that mission. Even today, right now, we're living out that mission through Pastor Zach and his team, and so we're proud of him. We're glad he's in Nicaragua doing the work that our church is, is doing because that is what multiplying is. We're multiplying disciples. We're multiplying churches. We are reaching people for the kingdom of God. And so my name is Pastor Keith. I'm the executive pastor here. And by default, since Pastor Zach's in Nicaragua, I get to bring the word today. And so we are in the book of Zechariah. Pastor Zach started a, a series last week called Crossover, and uh, he preached the message in, in Zechariah called the House of Revival. We talked about what it means to build a house of revival, and this week we are talking about a house of generations, a house of generations. So one of the scripture verses that Pastor Zach preached last week was Zechariah chapter 8, verses 4 through 5, and it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Now this is a picture of generations. The old men and old women were sitting on the streets full of boys and girls playing. And this is super important because this is after the 70 years of exile that the Israelites experienced. So what was the 70 years of exile? This 70 years was a time period in which the Israelites were taken from their homes and sent to a new land in Babylon. These people, the Israelites, were torn away from their life, torn away from everything that was comfortable, torn away from their lifestyle. Them and their families were taken from their homes and had to live in a foreign land. Now, I don't know about you, but I consider my house a place of peace and comfort. I would hope you would agree. Your home is a place of peace and comfort. An introvert like me, I find myself that if I go home, I want to be in a place of relaxing because I have an extroverted job. I have to be purposely extroverted, and that drains me, and so I want to go home to a place of warmth and comfort and relaxation. And so if someone told me that I no longer have that home anymore, that would affect me greatly. I would question what is happening, what is my purpose, where am I supposed to go, how can I provide for my family? And so this picture that Zechariah is drawing and prophesying of old men and old women on, on the street with young kids playing is a picture of what the future held for Jerusalem after they came back from being torn away from their homes. And so the pre, before, before the exile happened, and during the while the exile was happening, there is also another prophecy that was written by Jeremiah. And so this prophecy is an incredibly popular verse, and it is Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, and not to harm you, plans for a hope and a future. How many of you have heard of the scripture verse before? We have to be very careful 
about reading scripture in the moment and applying it to our lives without understanding the full context and the holistic nature of the Bible. We can become very dangerous with scripture when we just open up a Bible app, read a scripture verse, and then apply it to our lives in the moment, thinking that that's going to happen in the moment. I can read the scripture verse, and I can say, oh, I see the word plans to prosper you in it. That means God is going to prosper me today. I can read that and say, you know what? I've read this verse of the day, God plans to prosper me today. And when prosperity doesn't happen today, then I can all of a sudden start questioning my faith. God, I just read this prophecy, this promise, plans for a hope and a future, plans for prosperity. Why am I I not prosperous today? And then we can read this and we can think that since God has plans not to harm me, that I should never go through any hardships And so when I read this verse and it says that there are no plans to harm you, if I take that and personalize it in the moment, if I read it this morning and for some reason I was harmed today, I can all of a sudden point back to Scripture and say, God, I just read that you weren't going to harm me, and yet I'm facing harm and hardships right now. Do you see how we can take Scripture, twist it to our moment, and think that we are reading a promise to God, but reality is we have to read the context around the situation We can see that God has plans for you. Yes, if you read the entirety of Scripture, we know that every single one of you has been created for a plan and a purpose. You have certain skills and traits and talents that God uses. Yes, but when you read this verse and says, I know the plans I have for you, that sometimes doesn't mean you know exactly what those plans mean. Pastor Zach used the illustration last week of the connected dot to make a picture. Sometimes we don't know what the exact next decision that needs to be made, what decision we need to make is. And sometimes that's very frustrating. We know God has a plan for our lives, but yet sometimes some decisions are just so difficult to make. And we say, God, just help me make the right decision. I want to be in your will. Help me make the right decision. But how many know it's not that easy? It's not easy. Context is so important when we read the Bible, because if we don't have the context of what's going on, we can so easily read Scripture, twist it, under, think we understand what's going on, apply it to our lives, and then blame God, get angry at God, say, God, why, why do I feel like I read this and it's not happening in my life? The reality, Jeremiah 29, 11, Jeremiah is writing this prophecy to the Israelites who have just been ripped from their homes. They had just left Jerusalem. They are going into an exile for an unknown period of time. They don't know how long it's going to take until they come back. But the reality of that is that 70 years of this exile meant that the people receiving this prophecy in Scripture were not going to see the Scripture and the prophecy hold true for their lives. It was going to be the next generation. These Israelites leaving their homes, they would die in exile, and the, the generations that were born in exile were the ones to see this prophecy come true. So when Jeremiah says, for I know the plans I have for you, O Israel, Israelites, plans to prosper you, Israelites, not to harm you, Israelites, plans for a hope in the future, Israelites, it wasn't for the Israelites going into exile. It was for the next generation. It was for the generation coming after them. So in context, when you read this, we are reading that Jeremiah is prophesying that their house, their lineage, their DNA, their last name would live on. The temple, the house of God would someday be rebuilt in Jerusalem. See that word someday? This is a prophecy for generations to be built on, 
not necessarily for the people hearing that prophecy. That is the house of generations that we're talking about today. The next generation, God was preparing the Israelites for the generational blessing that came after them. The house of generations, what Zechariah was talking about, the generations of old men and old women watching the youth play in the streets. So that brings us to the book that we're talking about today, that we're reading that we're reading and understanding the prophecies of Zechariah. So in Zechariah chapter 1, it starts in verse 16 when we say, Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt, and the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says, My towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. So this is Zechariah now prophesying after the Israelites have come back from Babylon, started to come back in Jerusalem. So we, we see he mentions his house being rebuilt. That's the temple, the house of the Lord being rebuilt in Jerusalem. We also see that there's going to be plans for prosperity. This prosperity is literally the Israelites and the generations and the name of these Israelites being overflowed in the streets with old women and old men watching the youth of the children playing. That is the hope in the future that he's talking about. The hope in the future is the next generation living in Jerusalem. So this prophecy is being completed in front of them and also prophesying further into the future. What I find really interesting about Zechariah and his lineage, his house, his last name, his DNA, is that Zechariah's grandfather lived through the exile. And his grandfather was not only just part of his family line, he was a priest. Priest Ido is his name. So Zechariah's grandfather was either not born or a young boy himself when the Israelites went into Babylon, went into the exile, went into captivity. And so this happens while in his entire life, as a priest, he would know Jeremiah's prophecy. So as a young boy, he is in exile. And as a grandfather now, he is coming out of exile with his grandson now becoming the one prophesying over Israel. This is the generational blessing that we desire within our church and within our own lives. That this priest Ido heard of this generational blessing, heard of this prophecy, lived in exile his entire life, and at a very old age coming out of exile, watching his grandson now live out that prosperity. Do we want that generational blessing within our lives? That's the generational blessing of which we want our church to be built on, multi-generational blessing as well as our last name, as well as our family, as well as our children, our children, children. The biblical definition for house that we find within these scripture verses and within the entirety of the Bible is we found the house of the Lord, which literally means the house, the, the church, the temple of the Lord. So we talk about the temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem. We're talking about the church, the body of Christ being built. The also, the other definition of house is a literal home or lineage, your DNA, your children, your last name, your heritage, your blessing upon your children is your lineage of blessing. That we're, that's what we're talking about when we say the house. So the house of David, the house of Jesus, we're talking about the lineage 
of the last name. So the Israelites were very good at keeping records of their last name and their heritage. And so they pass it down. When we read Matthew, you see the exact lineage of, of Jesus. He was an adopted son. He was also the lineage of Joseph and Mary. Joseph's side being adopted, Mary being his bloodline. And you see the lineage of Jesus Christ all throughout the scripture of the Bible. Lineage is incredibly important because it's your last name. And there's also a blessing of God on your name when you choose to follow him. So how do you follow him? How do we build generational blessings? Well, first you have to build the house. You have to build the house, build the church, build your bloodline. In Zechariah 1, 16, it says, Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt. Talking about the temple, the physical structure, we as a church have to build the house of God. We have to build the church. And when I talk about building, I'm not necessarily just talking about building a physical structure. I'm talking about building a community of God. We are all called to be builders. We are all called to reach people. When God, when Jesus commissions us to go out into all the nations, he's talking about the church being builders and expanders and reachers for Christ. We are all called to be a builder, an expander, to reach people. And the great thing about that is God creates every single one of us with a personality and a temperament, with a skill and a talent to serve his kingdom and to reach people. You see, I'm introverted by nature, which means that I naturally am not going to be very outgoing, which is opposed to Pastor Zach, which is a fiery, red-headed man who's so extroverted, and he talks to everyone. And so the way that our lives are fulfilling God's purpose in our lives can be very different in different ways. Pastor Zach can invite 10 people to church, and that's what God is calling him to do and created him to do. Sometimes if I just invite one person to church, that is what I was called and created to do based on my temperament, my shyness and introvertedness. And guess what? You can't compare yourself to other people. God had created you for a plan and a purpose perfectly the way you are. You are created with specific talents and skills and temperaments and personalities for who you are to serve God, not for who someone else is to compare yourself to them. So when God calls you to be a builder, to be an expander, to be a reacher, he is calling you divinely by how he created you to serve the kingdom. Every single one of you is unique and you have a unique skill and temperament and personality to serve his church in your place. You are special you are unique, and you are going to be used by God when you, you allow God to use you. Not to compare your work to other people's work. I can tell you something straight up. Comparison game will destroy your life. When you compare yourself to others, it will destroy your life. When you compare your uh, other people's Instagram perfection to your messy life, it destroys your life. Instagram is a sliver of perfection that people want you to think their life is, but in reality, their life is just as messed up as your life. Don't compare other people's perfection to your imperfections. Don't compare the calling that God has on your life to the call God has on other people's lives. You have a specific skill, a unique set of talents that has been ordained for God to use in this moment of time. Don't compare that to someone else's calling. God has you right in your place. And you're supposed to be a builder. All of us are to build the church, to reach people. You can't just rely on the pastoral staff and the staff of the church to build the church. We can't do that. We can't do all of it. 
there is a, reper- a personal responsibility within your life to be an expander of the kingdom of God, to build the church. You have to build the church by living a lifestyle that reflects Jesus Christ, by talking about Jesus, the testimony you have in your life, about the messed up situations and the messy life that you came from to what a new, renewed creation in life that you have because of the identity you have in Jesus Christ. Every single one of you has a testimony. You have to build the church day by day, brick by brick, relationship by relationship. So if you're sitting in this room today and this is your church family, you are a builder. You are an expander. You are called to build the church. You're also called to build your house, your household, your last name. Your responsibility is your family and their faith. Your responsibility is to protect your family, guide your family, teach your family. That responsibility is a choice because let me tell you, there are those in our society and culture that want to take your children and shape their foundation on belief systems. They want to destroy the family. They want to tell you what to believe. It is your job as a family, as the mother and father of your household, to take responsibility of your children's faith. Joshua 24, 15 says, but for as me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Joshua is saying that he chooses to serve the Lord. As for me and my house, as for me and my last name, as my wife, my children, we will serve the Lord. I will live out my faith in front of my children. I will teach my children the faith I have in Jesus. I will let them see me reading the Bible, praying. I will let them see me having and looking for a healthy marriage because I want my children to see Jesus in my lifestyle. It is my responsibility to choose to serve the Lord for my household. It's a choice. It is our responsibility to build our house that would allow us to have a generational blessing. Blessing comes day by day habits by serving God and allowing our children to see, ask questions, and to teach them. We must teach them. They're going to be influenced by our actions, by our words, by our lifestyle. Let us be families that build our faith and allow our children to see our faith being lived out in front of them. Personally, you have to take the scripture verse and be serious about it. What does it mean to be intentional about building the faith of Christ in my household? And what does it mean that when I pray a blessing over my family and over my children, over my children's children, how am I a catalyst in that? What growth of faith is in my life that I will pray over my family? It's a personal choice and a decision. I'm a third generational pastor. I'm a fifth generational Pentecostal. My generational heritage started because my great-great-grandfather took this verse seriously and decided that he will have faith in Jesus Christ and that his household will serve Jesus. And so because of my great-great-grandfather, his grandson, my grandfather, was called into ministry and became a pastor. And because he was called into ministry and became a pastor, my father also had a calling and became a pastor. And because I watched my my faithful parents serve God with all of their hearts and I saw their faith lived out in action, I felt a call of God on my life. And know why? because it became a choice five generations ago to serve God. 
If you're here today and maybe you're a first-generational believer, guess what? That decision can have impacts for generations to come. But it's a choice to say my household, my lineage, my faith chooses to serve God. It's a choice. A choice to bless the generations that come after you. After you build a house, after you build the church, after you reach the community, after the building is happening, expanding is happening, you have to defend the house. Defend what you've built. In Zechariah 9, 13, it says, For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and I will wield you like a warrior's sword. What does it mean to be a weapon for Christ? What does it mean to be a weapon for God? You see, in Zechariah, it talks about this prophecy of being like a warrior's bow in the hand of the Lord. What does it, what does it mean to be in battle before with God? The idea of God using people as a weapon is also found throughout Scripture. In Psalms 127, 4-5, it says, Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. We read throughout scripture that God is calling us not only to build his house, but to protect his house. Has anyone ever seen the the commercial, Under Armour commercial? We must protect this house. It's a call. It's a war cry. It's a call that you must protect the house of God. You must protect the family of God. Because I'm telling you, there are those that will attack your foundation of your belief system. They will attack your family. They will attack your children, telling them what to believe, how to believe, when to believe it. You see, social media is not just something that kids are just addicted to. It's a mainstream way to get them to think a different way. Okay? Social media will tell your children, this is what you're supposed to look like. This is how you're supposed to act. And this is what is acceptable in society. And sometimes what is acceptable in society is not acceptable to live when you live by Christ in his standard. We have to defend our faith in front of our children for our children. We have to defend the church of God so that we're not perverted by culture and society. You see, if the church of God strays away from the word of God in its entirety, then the church will start reading scripture verses to what it wants it to believe and prove it the way that we read scripture out of context. You can easily go to a church that takes scripture out of context and make it seem what you want it to believe and find it in the Bible to prove it. We have to be a church that stands on the word of God, that defends We have to be a weapon that defends the word of God, that defends Jesus Christ, that defends our family members from being perverted by the world's standards. You see, Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus, yet the world will tell you what truth is and what truth isn't. The world has a different idea of what truth is. They will say that truth is relative meaning each of you can have your own equally true truth that contradicts each other, but is still true to you. You see the paradox? So make it make sense. How does that make sense? Well, according to the anti-religious, there is no absolute truth. And what is absolute truth? Absolute truth is a debate between theologians, and it's it's a philosophical debate that has been going on for centuries. Absolute truth refers to the idea that there are universal objective truths that exist independent of personal beliefs and cultural norms. And some people believe that there are absolute truths, while others believe that truth is just subjective relatively to 
your individual experience and your context. Well, I'm here to tell you when Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is declaring that he is the absolute truth. He is the absolute truth. And so when we understand that he is the absolute truth and word of God is calling us to be warriors like a bow, we are called to defend the truth. You are being called to defend Jesus Christ and his body, which is the church, and your family, of which there are influences trying to take them away from you. You are called to be a weapon. And some of, some of you might be intimidated by that fact. God is calling you to be a weapon for his kingdom. And he does not shy away from using scripture to prove that. Zechariah 10.4, it's a prophecy about Jesus. And it says, from him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow. We're talking about Jesus being the battle bow. It's not a foreign concept within scripture using Jesus, using the people of God as a defense mechanism. We are called to be warriors in the Lord's army. Has anyone gone to Children's Church and heard the song, I'm in the Lord's army, yes, sir. I'm in the Lord's army, yes, sir. There's like a handful of you that went to Sunday school and Children's Church when you're younger, and that's okay, that's great. But the reality is we are called to build the house and protect the house. You are a weapon for God, a weapon to defend the truth. Take that seriously and personally. You see in this prophetic uh, verse right here in Zechariah, from him shall come the cornerstone. What does that mean? Jesus is the foundation of faith. Jesus is the rock of which we build our house on, the house of generations, the church, and also your family. You have to protect that truth or else there is no rock. There is no foundation. When the truth is perverted, then the truth becomes an an unshaky, a shaky foundation of which you cannot build anything upon. Defend the church. Defend your pastor, your shepherd, defend your family. You are called to defend your house that you are building. Come on, church. This is a call of God in your lives. Let's go. Once you defend, once you build the church, once you build your heritage, once you take the challenge of defending that, you also have to understand that you're called to preserve the house. What do I mean by preserving the house? Zechariah 13 Verse 9, it says, I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. There is a refining and testing process within our faith. There is a process of which when we say yes to Jesus, that doesn't mean we stay the same. That means there is a change within our lives. You can't say yes to Jesus and then automatically revert to your old lifestyle and decisions you made before. That yes to Jesus signifies a new creation, a new identity, and a change moving forward. So you're fooling yourself if you've given your life to Christ and you haven't made any changes in your life. 
if you haven't become more like Jesus within your life and your lifestyle. You're fooling yourself if you've not gone through our refining process because we are all going through a refining process in our faith. It's called sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. So if we say that we are Christians and we're not becoming more like Jesus, even in small incremental ways, you are fooling yourself thinking that you have a real relationship and faith in Jesus. There should be fruit of the changes made in your life. There should be fruit from the actions and the words that you say and you speak because of the decision that you made. You should have the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your heart because of the relationship you have with Jesus. So if you're living the same exact way that you were living before Jesus came into your life, Jesus is not really in your life. You are just pretending. There's a foolishness, there's a comfort zone that we fall into that, that gives us a false sense of security. Don't fool yourself. If you're not becoming more like Jesus, you're pretending. Stop pretending you have faith. Put it into action. Use different words. Control your thoughts. Control what comes out of your mouth. Control your actions and your lifestyle. If you have issues, if you have things that are going on, you have temperaments and personality things, guess what? We serve a miraculous God that will show you how to improve and become more like him. You see, having a relationship with Jesus means that we automatically need to reflect his nature. So when we're close to the Father, we start reflecting his attributes and characteristics in our lives. When we're close to the Father, we are tempted in certain ways like we were tempted before, but we react differently. Why? Because it's the Holy Spirit that lives in and through us. There is a change that happens within our lives, and that change is not there, you need to start reevaluating your relationship with Jesus. There's a testing and refining process to the house that you built. The house of God, the church, we are full of imperfect people. We are not perfect in here. You will never be perfect in here. I'm not asking you to be perfect. God is not asking you to be perfect. In fact, that's why he sent Jesus Christ to be perfect on your behalf. We're not asking you to be perfect, but we also have an understanding that when we come to this place, we hold each other accountable to reflect the nature and attributes of Jesus Christ. So when we come to church, don't expect people to be perfect. Expect people to be refined, to go through a process, a refining process to be more like Jesus. And when that is absent, we hold each other accountable. We hold each other accountable in love with grace and mercy. Why love, grace, and mercy? That reflects the Father's heart. We serve a loving, graceful, wonderful Father who sent Jesus Christ for us. How many of you watch HGTV? How many want, to want do-it-yourselfers, want to be do-it-yourselfers are in here? I myself is included in that. Uh, I, sh I watch this show, Flip or Flop, where they go to this house, foreclosed houses everywhere. They go to these houses, offer cash to buy them, flip them, and then make an incredibly huge profit uh, at the end when they sell it, right? So... I was watching this one episode where uh, this couple went to this house. They can't go inside the house, so they look inside the windows. And as they look inside the windows, they see, oh, there's not that much damage inside. We can easily change the colors, change the light fixtures, change the rooms up a little bit, and be able to flip this house really easily and sell it for a quick profit. How many know that doesn't make for good TV, okay? 
So, so of course, when you watch that happen, you're like, that's not going to happen. Okay, so they, get, they buy the house for cash. They go into this house. They call their contractor to come in, start evaluating, doing the inspections, giving them what they need to be done. And so when the contractor comes in, they go in the house and they see there's cracks all over the walls. And they ask the contractor, can we fix these cracks? The contractor does his inspection. And after the inspection comes back, he comes to the, the couple and says, yes, there are cracks all over your wall. And you can, you can cover up those cracks. You can make those cracks. There's cracks in the floor over here too. You can cover up those cracks, right? You can, you can make the walls look perfectly whole. But the problem is those cracks are going to come back. Those cracks will, will come back. Why, why will those cracks come back? Because the foundation of the house is not steady. It's not the cracks in the wall. It's the foundation that is shifting. It's moving. This house is not stable. No matter how many patch jobs you do on these walls, the cracks will come back worse and worse until the foundation is fixed. You see, the cracks are just a symptom of the biggest problem, and that biggest problem is a failure to maintain, preserve, and upkeep the foundation of the house. Many Christians, sin is, this, sin is just a symptom of a shaky, unsecure foundation of faith that was once built but not maintained or preserved. Their family's faith is starting to get shaky because of the influence of the world, the church they are part of, the church, the greater church, not this church, becomes more like the world and loses its influence. An unsecure foundation is a result of hearing God's word and either only applying it once to your life or applying what you want to read out of the Bible and rejecting the rest. An unsecure foundation is a result of making faith more about feelings rather than God's word. The unsecure foundation is a result of putting trust in celebrity pastors or political figures or social media influencers and not in Christ alone. Because you see, people fail, Jesus will never fail. The symptoms of sin are often a result of an unsecure foundation that you have with Jesus Christ. That's why when you read Matthew 7, 24, building your house on the rock, everything comes to completion and it makes more sense. So I'm going to have everyone stand to your feet this morning as we start to come to a conclusion. This verse is incredibly important to building your house, building the house of God on the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. So Jesus is, is telling this parable, and he says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And then the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. We've heard this parable before. We've heard this illustration that Jesus is speaking. And we have to take that and apply it to our lives in a real way. And what it's talking about is our personal relationship with Jesus. If it's not founded on Christ then our faith will be shaken easily and fall. Whenever you go through adversity, 
your adversity will be blamed on God. And when you blame God for your adversity, your faith is shaken. And that gives room for the devil to manipulate you in your emotions and your feelings. You see, when we don't have faith in Christ first and our foundation on Christ, the cornerstone first, then we put ourselves in a very dangerous situation. We put ourselves in a situation where we're vulnerable to an attack. When we're vulnerable to being isolated and attacked based on emotions and feelings, based on anything and everything else in the world. But when we say yes to Jesus and we build our house on Jesus, we build our faith on Jesus, then we can expect the generational blessings to follow. So if you're here this morning, I'm going to ask just every eye closed, every head bowed, just for a moment. If you're here today and you've never had a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you're here today and you've had a relationship with Jesus at one time, but you've fallen away, you've forgotten what it means to be a Christian, you've forgotten what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. If you're here and you fall into one of those two categories, I'm just going to simply ask you to raise your hand right now. I'm not going to embarrass you. We're not going to call you out. We just want to celebrate the greatest decision you'll ever make is saying yes to Jesus and building your house on a firm foundation of which Jesus provides for you. Hallelujah. If you say yes today, yes, yes, Lord. Hallelujah. I'm going to ask you to repeat this prayer this morning. Jesus, I choose you. I am a sinner, but you died on the cross for my sins. I choose to serve you from this day forward. Help me to live wide awake to your love and fully alive to my purpose. Amen. Amen. Hey, can we give it up for those who gave their lives to Jesus this morning? The way we want to end our service today is... Our worship team is going to sing a powerful song. It's called The Blessing. And this, this song, the words literally speak a blessing over your family, your children's children, and your children's children for a thousand generations. And we had a, a series a couple of weeks ago on altered and coming to the altar. And so what I'm going to ask you today is that we take the verse that Joshua uh, spoke over his family literally and seriously within our lives. So when he says, I choose, I, me and my house, we will serve the Lord, it is a choice of faith. And so if you are looking for your generational blessing within the church community and within your own life, within your children's life, I'm simply going to ask you to take a step of faith as we sing this song, that you would come and surrender your family to the Lord and say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I'm choosing to serve you on behalf of my children who are in children's ministry or even here right now on behalf of my children i will serve you lord and i ask for that blessing to be upon my life it's an act of faith it's an, a step of a choice in saying i put my family before you i go to the altar to surrender my family before you asking for that generational blessing and favor upon my household that is a very serious statement because it requires faithfulness on yourself, but it also requires reliance on the Father over your family. And so as we sing this song, there are moments that are so powerful that I want you to surrender to God and say, God, I am giving my family to you. As I choose to serve you, I am giving my household to you. And I am praying 
for your favor and your blessing over my house. So worship team, let's worship, let's sing this song, let's fill the altar just for a moment before we close the service and, and honor God by saying we give our families to you.